If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, Zach's going to help us. He's going to put Scripture on the screen, so that, that's all right. If you do have your paper Bible, though, please turn to Isaiah 53 and put a bookmark in John 6. Isaiah 50, did I say 53? 54. Isaiah 54 and John 6. If you don't attend church a whole lot, Isaiah is in the Old Testament, Old Testament prophet, and he wrote about six, seven hundred years before the coming of Jesus. And so John 6 is New Testament. That's six, seven hundred years after what we're going to see in Isaiah. Okay, so hopefully that helps you a little bit. Isaiah 54. Last week we were in Isaiah 53, remember? In Isaiah 53, which is one of those seminal passages in all of Scripture, we saw a prophecy looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Now, his name isn't mentioned, but he's simply referred to as, remember, the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. And so we learned that Isaiah 53 caps off a series of what we call servant songs. A few chapters in the books of Isaiah which look forward to a coming individual. And that coming individual, uh, again, called the servant of the Lord, is one who's going to usher in the kingdom of God. And so we learned that he would be what? He would be meek. We learned that he would be gentle. We learned that he would love the downtrodden. He would love those who are weary. uh, And he would call them to himself. He's one who would bring in a kingdom marked by justice and righteousness and peace. And further, in some way, this servant of the Lord would be instrumental in bringing about something called a covenant of peace, a covenant of peace. And what that meant was a reconciliation between God and man, peace between God and man. And of course, all of this, again, you know, not to be a spoiler, spoiler alert here, you know, but 700 years looking forward to who? Jesus. Jesus would be the servant of the Lord who would fulfill all of this. And so, Isaiah 53 then serves as like an unconventional climax to those other servant songs in that we find that servant of the Lord who would come and usher in his kingdom would do so by giving himself sacrificially uh, and he would die. A very unusual climax to this promise of this coming kingdom. And so we learn that through his substitutionary death, he would bear the penalty of the sins of the world and make peace between God and man. And again, six, seven hundred years prior uh, to the coming of Jesus. And that's exactly the type of ministry that Jesus had. And so Christ came, and uh, his character was just that. He was meek, and he was gentle, and he uh, loved sinners, and he loved the weak, and he loved the downtrodden, and so much so that they flocked to him. That was exactly what his earthly ministry was like. And he did give himself to suffer on the cross. What he would accomplish through his death and through his subsequent resurrection and exaltation, uh, is that covenant of peace. And it's all predicted there in Isaiah 53. So Jesus, the servant of the Lord, would give himself on the cross, not only suffering at the hands of men, but suffering uh, in the place of those men, bearing a divine penalty toward the sins of the world. Well, that's all recap. Today we come to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. The very next chapter. Isaiah 54, look at the very first word. What does it say? Sing. Sing. 
after Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering of the servant of the Lord, now we're called upon to sing. Well, that doesn't seem right. It seems like if the servant of the Lord has just died, giving himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world, maybe we should mourn. But remember, Isaiah 53 doesn't end with death. It then even alludes to his resurrection and his exaltation. And because Jesus accomplishes something through his death, now Isaiah says, sing. There's reason to celebrate. Well, this morning, we're going to look at some of the reasons to celebrate. What is it that Jesus accomplished for us as the servant of the Lord that warrants celebratory song? We're going to see three things. And then, hopefully, we'll end up in John 6 to see Jesus himself taking up the themes from Isaiah. What does this celebratory song focus upon? We're not going to read the whole text right now because we're going to work our way through every verse uh, through, the, uh, through the sermon this morning. So what is worth singing about as we consider what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross? First of all, look in verse 1. Israel is called upon to break forth into song because, Isaiah says, they will experience abundant fruitfulness. You'll understand some practical application there in a minute. But verse 1 says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh, or says the Lord, depending on your translation. One of the great fears of the Jews... Now, remember, this is written at a time when the Jewish people are in captivity. They've rebelled against God over and over and over and over again to the point then where God sends the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and now the Jewish people are captive in Babylon. One of the fears of the Jews would have been total extinction. The Babylonians, part of their methodology here when they'd conquer a people is they tried to destroy the distinctiveness of those people. Destroy their temple, destroy their religion, remove them from their land, try to get them intermingled with others so that they would lose their identity. And so the fear of some of the Jews would be just that. Would their identity as the people of God forever be lost? Well, Isaiah is answering that here. We learn that because of the sacrificial death of the servant of the Lord in the previous chapter... God's people had nothing to fear. They would not become extinct. They would not perish. But in fact, according to Isaiah, they're going to experience abundant fruitfulness. Interesting. So a metaphor is used here. Notice the metaphor. It's the metaphor of a husband and a wife, or it's a, it's a metaphor of a woman who's unable to bear children. Interesting. Physically unable to bear children, Throughout the Old Testament, we find that the relationship between God and Israel is often compared to that of a husband and wife. Sadly, it's often compared to a husband and an unfaithful wife. And uh, Israel, through its immorality and continual idolatry, is compared to a wife who's continually unfaithful to her husband. And the husband keeps taking her back and taking her back and taking her back, even in face of all of her unfaithfulness, until ultimately the husband puts her away. And that's a picture of God uh, allowing his people to be taken into captivity. So we see that metaphor throughout the Old Testament. But here God is pictured as finally putting away his unfaithful bride, his adulterous wife, and leaving her to her own shame and disgrace. That's the picture. And although her covenant with God once had great promise, she now finds herself, the words are barren, desolate, and with no hope of offspring at all. But notice in verse 1, God makes a promise. 
Again, following the sacrifice of the servant of the Lord. She who was barren and unmarried would indeed bear children. In fact, she's going to bear more children than any other nation. In other words, God would work so that Israel would not suffer shame and disgrace of captivity, but would one day see their lineage renewed and bring forth abundant people. Now, this would be an incredible comfort to Israel as they're languishing in captivity. And of course, if you know the Bible, this puts us in mind of Abraham and Sarah. Remember, God comes to Abraham when he's old, and Sarah, when she's old, they don't have any children. And he promised Abraham, you're going to have more children than the stars in the sky, right? And, uh, and Abraham's, when well, I'm old. And Sarah's, I'm old. I actually physically cannot have children. Uh, but God faced those uh, impossible circumstances and did fulfill his promise. And Abraham and Sarah did have a child who would then bring be the progenitor of uh, a nation. But now Israel's in captivity. So where's that promise now uh, to Abraham and Sarah when it looks like the people are about to be cut off? But God says he will fulfill that promise. His people will be fruitful. They will inherit the land, even in the face of impossible circumstances. Despite their rebellion, despite their captivity, they will one day be blessed. That's verse 1. Now look in verse 2. It says, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. What he's saying is, get ready for expansion. Get ready uh, to prepare for the masses of people uh, that uh, you will receive. Verse 3, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Uh, The cities have been devastated. You're in captivity. You're on the brink of extinction. But my promise is this. You will have abundant peoples, so get ready for it. That's the idea. Fruitfulness, expansion, and inheritance. And so Isaiah is saying, these are reasons to sing. And all of this then being accomplished by the servant of the Lord dying for the sins of his people in the previous chapter. So, question. How does Jesus' death on the cross result in fruitfulness, expansion, and an inheritance for rebellious people? And how in the world does this apply to us? Is this a promise for Jews only? Not only is this not a promise for Jews only, this is not even a promise for all the Jews. These promises are for everyone who places their faith in that servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. These promises are made to all. And we're going to see a little bit later that there's an open invitation. And now you're thinking, well, why in the world do I want this promise? You don't understand. Like, my kids are grown. I don't want to expand my tents, you know, empty, empty nest, finally got some spare rooms in my house. Uh, I, I don't want abundant children. What, what is this all about? Uh, no, that's not the point. What we're going to see is there's direct application to the church in just a moment. We're also going to see that those who benefit from this promise are those uh, who respond to an open invitation. To all. We're going to skip ahead a little bit, but a little bit later in Isaiah 55, we're going to see that invitation. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so on. It's saying this is open to all who will come and all will benefit from this promise. So what about the idea of fruitfulness and expansion and inheritance? 
It's not just referring to having lots of kids. If you fast forward to the New Testament, Paul quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1. And look at the context in which he quotes it in Galatians 4.27. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Right? I mean, that's right out of Isaiah. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now look at verse 28. It says, Now you, brothers, who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians in the region of Galatia. These are non-Jews, right? He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. What's he saying? He's saying the Gentile church. I mean, this is the church. All these people who have believed in Jesus, now all these non-Jews being added to the church, he's saying, it's like you are those children of promise. It's like you are a descendant of Abraham. And so that promise in Isaiah, the old barren one who did not bear and so on, it's saying this is the expansion of the church, right? Uh, everyone, Jew or Gentile, who's a follower of Jesus, is a spiritual descendant of Abraham then. Everyone who believes is one of these children of promise. Galatians 3.7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now you're here this morning and you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with me? Well, well, this might help you. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you uh, believe in God through Christ? Do you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross so that you can have a relationship with God? you have that faith? Well, this is you here. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, if you're not a Jew here this morning, you're a Gentile, okay, uh, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So to summarize, Isaiah is looking forward to the day when the servant of the Lord would give himself for the sins of his people. And by paying the penalty of the sins, your sins and my sins, he makes salvation possible. For whom? For all who believe by faith, even for those who are once rebels. And so it's in this way that spiritual children will be multiplied. So when you believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus, we're added to the ranks of millions of others who have chosen to follow him. And we become part of God's miracle family. That's the promise here in Isaiah. So although Israel, the, the people of God, were on the brink of extinction there in the captivity in Babylon, that extinction was never really a real possibility because God had a promise. God had a plan to multiply the people of God through the death of the servant of the Lord. And six, 700 years after these promises, Jesus came and he did just that. He opened the way of salvation for, for all. So that's the first reason to sing. Abundant fruitfulness. God will expand the people of God to the point where the people of God will eventually inherit the whole earth. That's a reason to sing. There's another reason to sing here. Through the death of Jesus Christ, not only have you and I been added to God's family, and not only will that family continue to grow until it inherits the whole earth, but verse 5 gives us another reason. He shows us we ought to sing because God has offered us intimate relationship. Abundant fruitfulness, intimate relationship. Verse 5, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. He continues the metaphor. And so here, Isaiah is focusing directly upon shame and disgrace. 
the shame and disgrace that Israel would have been experiencing in captivity. They had every spiritual privilege that a people could have. They had the covenants, they had the promises, right? Uh, they, they had it all, but they squandered them. The God of creation promised to be their God and promised that they could be his people. He gives them a promised land and he promises to bless them forever, but they're completely unfaithful to him, perpetually unfaithful to him. Consequently, they lost it all. The eyes of all the surrounding nations would be looking at Israel saying, you can't keep your land. Here you've had multiple uh, conquerors who've come and driven you from your land. So that would have been shame and disgrace. It appears as if your God has forsaken you. Shame, disgrace. You've been subjugated by others. Again, shame and disgrace and reproach. But then God gives a promise here. As he say, the day is coming when you're not going to remember the shame anymore. You're not going to remember this disgrace anymore. You're not going to be confounded anymore. In fact, so great will be the blessings of that day that will come. You will have no memory of these at all. But how so? Well, remember last week in Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, the servant of the Lord Jesus, he shall see and be satisfied. His knowledge, uh, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many accounted, be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The day is coming, Israel. The shame and disgrace you've experienced due to your rebellion and your unfaithfulness, because the servant of the Lord is going to bear your iniquities, what you will actually be made righteous. What an awesome promise. And we can say that that promise, as we're going to see a little bit later, is for individuals as well. Those who are once overcome by their shame and disgrace will be given reason to sing. Those who are once alienated from God would be reconciled and would benefit from an astounding relationship with him. Look at how the relationship is described in verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. What a promise to a people who are currently captive by the Babylonians because of the rebellion against God. It's as if they've been cast off and been deserted by God. That's how they feel. And God is saying, there's a promise here. The day is going to come where you're brought back into intimate relationship. And what is that relationship going to be like? For your maker is your husband. Your maker. He's your creator. He knows everything about you. Make this practical, by the way, because this is true of all of us here this morning. He knows everything about you. He made you. He didn't just make mankind in general. He made you, and he made me. So he knows us. He knows our fears. He knows our anxieties. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows everything about our makeup. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Right? How much of your life is just trying to figure out yourself? What does it say? It says, your maker is your husband. Well, that's interesting. That speaks of loving relationship. Covenant relationship. He knows everything about you as a maker, and even knowing everything about you, He still loves you. Imagine that. Your maker is your husband. That speaks of relationship, covenant love, featuring provision, protection, acceptance. At least that's what a husband ought to be. He says, for your maker is your husband. Then he says, the Lord of hosts is his name. What is that talking about? The Lord of hosts speaks of God's command of all the heavenly armies. In other words, protection. 
He can marshal all the hosts of heaven in order to protect you. Not only will those who once suffered shame and disgrace because of their sin now benefit from a relationship with God as their maker and husband, but they can be confident that God will not allow anything to threaten that relationship because he is Yahweh of hosts or Lord of hosts. And then Isaiah says, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. What's that talking about? It speaks of his, both his transcendence and his imminence. Transcendence in that he is the Holy One. He's holy other. He's set apart. Uh, he fits in no human category. He is holy, different, and above all, uh, that's the Holy One. But then it says the Holy One of Israel. And that speaks of his imminence. The transcendent one has come near and given himself to Israel in relationship. And why did he come near? It says, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The transcendent one made himself near in order to pay the price required to purchase a people out from under the captivity of sin and to take them to be his own. Intimate relationship. And one more, it says, the God of the whole earth he is called. This is the only God, the creator God, the God who's sovereign over the earth. Those who once suffered shame and disgrace and reproach, being alienated from the God of the whole earth, will now be regarded as his precious people. That's the promise. Abundant fruitfulness, intimate relationship. And by the way, if you were to fast forward to the New Testament, you would see that Jesus Christ fulfills each one of those elements. Those who once suffered shame and disgrace due to their sin will enter a relationship with their maker or creator who knows everything about them. And Paul wrote of Jesus in Colossians 1. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Who's the maker? It's Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. What else did we learn there? Those who once suffered shame and disgrace due to their sin will enter into a relationship with God as their loving, protective, providing, and accepting husband. That may be new terminology for you or a new metaphor. Does the Bible anywhere in the New Testament indicate that Jesus functions like a husband to us? Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love, uh, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. By the way, if you're, again, new to Christianity, there you, this is what the Bible actually teaches about how husbands ought to treat their wives, okay? So if that's not your experience, that's what the Bible teaches. And if you have experience where people claim to be Christians, but they use their Christianity to justify kind of a dominant relationship between man and wife, that was unbiblical, right? This is what the Bible actually teaches. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so uh, Isaiah says that what? Your maker is your husband? What do we learn? Christ is the maker, and Christ is the husband. What else did we learn? Well, we learned that God promises that he, as the Lord of hosts, will protect them. They'll enter a secure relationship, one in which they have no fear that anything can separate them from God. Well, does the New Testament indicate 
that Christ serves as that type of protector for us? Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord of hosts can marshal all the power of the heavenly armies to guard his relationship with you. What else did we learn? We learn that those who once suffered shame and disgrace due to their sin will benefit from a relationship in which the transcendent God will make himself near in order to redeem. Hebrews chapter 1. It says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There we see Christ as creator again. But then it says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is that? That's Jesus Christ being the transcendent one. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But then Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. The transcendent one came near. And for what purpose? To redeem. To redeem. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what Isaiah is promising. And so God has looked upon us who have languished under the shame and disgrace of our sins, and he has had compassion. In his compassion, he sent Jesus Christ, who gave himself so that we might have this incredible relationship with God. Consequently, those who were once overcome by shame and disgrace, what? Isaiah says, you have reason to sing. So, Maybe you're here this morning and you have that type of past. I mean, we all do to a certain extent. We have a life before Christ, which in a lot of ways we're kind of ashamed of. Maybe you have a past where you've experienced disgrace. Maybe you suffer the reproach of others. Maybe you still struggle with some of the grief as you bring these things back to mind, feeling like you can never kind of live down your previous lifestyle or these, these things of the past. Maybe you dwell on those things. Maybe you feel as if God is distant from you or has rejected you because of those things. If that's you, you're going to be incredibly helped by what we see next. Because Isaiah continues with the metaphor of a wife and a husband in verse 6 through 10. Look at it. It says, for Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off. Remember that term cast off, by the way, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you in overflowing anger. For a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Because of what Jesus, the servant of the Lord, accomplished by dying upon the cross, even we, a rebellious people who previously found ourselves distant from God, can be assured that his loving compassion is extended to us. The same holy God who judges sin is also compassionate towards those who suffer because of sin. He sent Jesus Christ not simply to take care of the sin that offends him, 
but He sent Jesus Christ to deal with the sin that oppresses us. So in His compassion, He sent Christ to die in order to atone for our sins. Now, God is fully satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. Consequently, all who believe in Him will receive not condemnation, but compassion. Those who were once cast off, God is now regathering to Himself. In the place of divine anger, there is now everlasting love. And so why sing about what Jesus has accomplished through the cross? Because through His death, He delivered us from shame and disgrace and reproach. Because He's brought us into a relationship with God. A relationship of love and acceptance and protection and compassion. A relationship in which God has forgiven our sin and assured us that we will never, ever suffer that shame or reproach again. But Isaiah isn't done yet. There's even more reasons to burst forth in this song when we consider Jesus. When we consider what he accomplished for us on the cross. In addition to abundant fruitfulness and intimate relationship, what we see next is through Jesus Christ we receive eternal security. Eternal security. So the question might pop into your mind, okay, so the history of Israel is such where God gave them these covenants, promises. says, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. And he provided everything they needed for that. They were unfaithful, immorality, idolatry. I mean, every spiritual privilege. Read the Old Testament and you just get so frustrated with Israel. It's like, come on, the same cycle of rebellion. And they're so unfaithful to God, even though he's so faithful to them. And then God gives them over to their own sin and allows them to be taken away into captivity. And you might be thinking, okay, well, you have all these promises that you're extending, Isaiah, but you know what? What happens if I mess up just like Isaiah messed up or just like Israel messed up? Could I then find myself cast off from God because of my own sin, just like Israel found? Whoa, we're going to see something here where God's indicating that because of what Jesus accomplished, there's an entire paradigm shift that happens so that that type of judgment can never happen again towards God's people. Look in verse 9. God says, this is like the days of Noah to me. Something major has happened here because of what the servant of the Lord accomplished in in chapter 53. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. He's explaining the, the, the magnitude of the shift that has happened in redemptive history. And he compares that to the days of Noah. We're not going to go there for the sake of time, but Genesis 8 makes it very plain. Genesis 6, Genesis 8. Uh, the flood comes because mankind has corrupted themselves on the earth. God sends global judgment against uh, mankind. But then after the flood, he promises Noah, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And this is who he is by nature. If I were to judge every sin of man, giving all the sin, the judgment that it deserves, then human would just be wiped out. Human history would have to come to an end. So he says, I'm never again going to judge the earth through such a, a global flood again. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I'm going to allow human history to continue in, in his long-suffering patience. But then Isaiah says, because of what Jesus has accomplished, Isaiah 53 on the cross, a very similar shift has happened. And God is saying, now, because I'm fully satisfied by Christ's sacrifice, I will never again judge the sins of those who believe in Him. 
as wonderful as that news is. However, when we see Noah, that's talking about human history in general. But Isaiah is talking about individuals. Just like the promise to never again judge the earth through the flood, so now he's making a promise to every individual who returns to him through Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you haven't yet believed in Christ, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the promise to you is this. Any judgment due your sin has been satisfied by Christ's death upon the cross. And God's promise is that His wrath and judgment is forever turned away so that you never face that judgment or that fear of judgment again. So he says, this is like the days of Noah to me. Look in verse 10. It says, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. So God's compassionate even towards the rebellious. And so he sends Christ to atone for our sins. He makes a way so that everyone who is an enemy or who has been an enemy of God may be welcomed into a covenant of peace. Peace, harmony, reconciliation is available to sinners. And that's what he gives us through Jesus. So again, flip over to the New Testament, Romans 5. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, that is declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Just like Isaiah said, sing, because through the servant of the Lord, the covenant of peace has come. Paul says, rejoice. Why? Because through Jesus, we have reconciliation with God, us who were formerly enemies. So he says in verse 8 of Isaiah 54, that this love from God is everlasting. In verse 10, he says that it's steadfast. He says it will never depart from you. It says it shall not be removed. So through Jesus, God has ushered in a new covenant in which those who return to him have absolutely no fear of wrath or judgment or condemnation. Those who once experienced shame or guilt or affliction, disgrace, reproach, can be assured that they're going to receive everlasting love, compassion, within the context of a divine covenant one that can never be broken. And that's why I say abundant fruitfulness, intimate relationship, and now what? Eternal security. Well, Isaiah then shifts, and he now moves from talking about the deserted wife as a metaphor and, and about how those who come to God through Jesus, the servant of the Lord, are, it's, it's as if that unfaithful wife has been regathered by a loving husband and uh, been restored to intimate relationship he shifts to a different metaphor in verse 11. Now he's going to start talking about a city. He says in verse 11, we're going to say a devastated city. you got the deserted wife, you got the devastated city. Verse 11. It says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. 
So again, the metaphor just shifted. You know, now we're talking about a devastated city that's been trodden down by uh, enemies, and now he says, "I'm going to rebuild that city. I'm going to rebuild it. The walls are going to be fortified, and they're going to be encrusted with jewels. Uh, it's going to be a magnificent, magnificent city that stands in splendor." And how does he describe the city? You were once afflicted, you were once storm-tossed, but now you will be comforted and you will be exalted. But then notice a very significant verse in verse 11 or 13. He says of this city, all your children shall be taught by Yahweh and great shall be the peace of your children. What does that mean? Throughout Israel's history, there's always been a mixed bag. You had some genuine worshipers among the Jews and you had those who were not. Uh, what he's saying is the day's coming where you can be assured that the entire population of the people of God are regenerate, genuine believers. That day's coming. And so, and he uses the analogy or the metaphor of the city. All the citizens of the city will be taught by God. They will be genuine worshipers. Jeremiah promised that in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. We won't read it for the sake of time. But the point is this. The day's coming when all the people of God will be known to be genuinely saved, genuine worshipers, have a genuine relationship with God. Why? Because everyone who comes to the Messiah, everyone who comes to Christ, will have first been taught by God himself. That seems a little bit obscure. All that means is this. If you're here this morning and you're hearing the gospel for the first time, maybe it's not your first time, but you've never really responded to the gospel, and you're beginning to understand it. You're saying, okay, I get it. I mean, I've heard about Jesus you know, my whole life. I've heard about the cross my whole life, but now I understand it. God sent his son to bear the sins of the world on the cross in order to turn away, turn away the judgment of God against sinners. And now he offers salvation to all who believe in Jesus. It's beginning to dawn on you. You understand it. What's happening in your heart? God's teaching you. God's teaching you. God's Holy Spirit is helping you to understand the gospel. That's the idea here, is that this whole city is populated by those who have been taught by God. God draws them and gives them an understanding of the gospel. That's the idea. So it's in this way that those who have experienced shame and affliction and disgrace and reproach can be assured that they will receive everlasting love and compassion within the context of a divine covenant, which can never be broken. And then they can be confident that they're eternally secure in the relationship with their loving God because ultimately they know they've only come because it's God who has first taught them. Well, Isaiah further describes that protection of those people, the protection they'll receive from the Lord in verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Again, the idea of of this city that he's going to protect. And he's saying, listen... If trouble comes, understand it's not from me. You're not going to have to fear captivity. You're not going to have to fear that I've sent people in judgment to carry you away. If there's trouble, it's not from me. Why? Because we have a covenant of peace. Uh, But even if there is trouble, he says, I'm going to protect you. But then to conclude the entire song, Isaiah says in verse 17 this. Now this is concluding, right? Don't get too excited. This is Isaiah concluding, not me concluding. But uh, he, he, he concludes it all by saying all these blessings that I've just laid out, this abundant fruitfulness, this intimate uh, relationship, 
And this eternal security, he says, verse 17, this is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh and their vindication from me declares Yahweh. So who does this belong to? Who do all these promises belong to? Well, the servants of Yahweh, the servants of the Lord. We flip to the New Testament, what we're going to see in a moment is the servants of Yahweh are those who end up placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you can claim these promises, right? If you're a believer, if you're not yet a believer, you can still claim these promises as you place your faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the question this morning. Are you or will you be one of those servants of the Lord? Have you been or will you be delivered from your shame and your disgrace that has been brought up? uh, and, and, And would you be brought into a relationship with God as your maker and your redeemer? Are you or would you be one who would find peace and reconciliation with God? Are you one who can say that you are eternally secure within an intimate relationship with God? If you can answer yes to all that, then these promises can be claimed by you. You are one of those servants of the Lord, or you can be. So what does Isaiah say? Well, sing, right? Sing. Sing about all those blessings. But now look in Isaiah 55. Now, Oh, no, he's going to go through another chapter. I'm not going to. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Look at how Isaiah, now after talking about the heritage of the servants of the Lord, all those blessings because of what the servant of the Lord did in Isaiah 53. Look what he says in Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. In other words, he's saying there's an open invitation. This is open to you, right? Come, everyone who thirsts. So, well, we say it's an open invitation, but only those who are thirsty will respond, right? You have to recognize that you're thirsty in order to seek out water and that you're hungry in order to seek out food. So saying those who recognize their need for all of this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's free, he says. Don't got to bring any money. Is he talking about real money? No. Don't attempt trying to bring your own righteousness or your own good works, saying, oh, I've earned this, so give it to me because I can buy it off you. No, this is free. It must be free because we have no worth of our own. We have to receive it as a gift. So come, don't come with money, but recognize your need. But then he says in verse 2, why do you spend money? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not, that which does not satisfy? Why are you spending your whole life pursuing things that don't really satisfy? Why do you keep pursuing things, putting all your effort and thoughts into things that don't really fulfill? He says, come to me and receive full, genuine satisfaction and fulfillment through relationship with your God. And it's free. Recognize your need, however. It says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. Like, it's time for you to take care of your eternal soul. You take care of your physical body. You take care of your comforts. Think about your eternal soul. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. That's an open invitation. My steadfast and sure love to David speaks of the covenant with David. And Psalm 89 references that where he says, listen, if your children disobey, I'm not going to cast them out forever, but I'm going to discipline them as a loving father might discipline his children and so on. Uh, It's a covenant. Well, as we do now approach our conclusion, you may be not really familiar with the Scripture a whole lot. Maybe you're not very familiar with Isaiah 53, 54, 55. You think, well, this is kind of strange because he keeps talking about Jesus, but in Isaiah 54, it doesn't say Jesus. Isaiah 53, it doesn't say Jesus. No, 
but it is 100% looking forward to Jesus. And I think that we can see that in John 6. It's kind of strange seeing these metaphors, a deserted wife. God calls him that cast-off wife, calls her that cast-off wife. A little bit strange to this idea of a city and so on. Maybe Jesus' words can help us with this in John 6. So look at it. I remember I told you to put your bookmark there. Going to look at John 6. John is the fourth gospel written about the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. Written again hundreds of years after Isaiah. In John 6, we find Jesus speaking to a massive crowd. People who are following him, some for good reason, but many of them are just following him because they want food. He had just performed a miracle where he gave you know, the fish and the bread and so on, and people are following because they, they just want to eat. And Jesus responds to this massive crowd of thousands of people, John 6, 27. He says this, Now tell me if this sounds familiar to you. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Does this sound familiar? Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor and labor for that which does not satisfy? Jesus says, why are you working for food that perishes? But for, uh, he says, do not work for that food, but instead that which endures for, uh, towards eternal life. Isaiah said, don't put all your efforts in pursuing the things that don't really satisfy. Jesus says, don't put all your efforts into those things that don't truly satisfy. That's not coincidence. What we're going to find is that Jesus in John 6 is actually issuing forth the invitation from Isaiah 55. Why? Because he is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53. He satisfies God's judgment by dying upon the cross. He creates a scenario in which all these blessings are now available. And then he issues forth the invitation. Isaiah 53, 54, and 55. So Isaiah 55, 1. What is the invitation? Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's the same invitation. The abundant fruitfulness, intimate relationship, and eternal security that Isaiah prompted us to sing about are all provided by Jesus. And here Jesus is issuing that open invitation. But we're not done here yet. The connections become even clearer. Remember the two metaphors? The metaphor of the deserted wife. The metaphor of the desolate city. Isaiah said that through the sacrificial death of the servant of the Lord, those things would be righted. The deserted wife would no longer be cast off but gathered. The desolate city or the devastated city would be rebuilt. Well, look at what Jesus says in John 6, 37. Whereas Isaiah 54, 6 promises that Yahweh will call Israel like a wife deserted, one who's grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Have you felt cast off? Have you felt disgraced? Have you felt the reproach and shame and so on? You've been like that cast off wife. Jesus says, well, come to me and I will never cast you out. 
I will never cast you out. Here Jesus, the servant of the Lord, has finally come. And while anticipating his coming substitutionary sacrifice, he issues that invitation, come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast you out. Is that really what's going on here? Jesus really issuing the invitation from Isaiah? Is he really ushering the covenant of peace that God foretold? Is he really issuing forth that invitation? Well, if you're not convinced yet, you will be. As Jesus was inviting the crowds to come to him and to receive full satisfaction in presenting himself as the bread of life sent by the Father to give life to the world, many people became angry. They didn't like to hear this. He's blasphemous. How can he say he's the one upon whom the Father sent his seal? How can he say he's the one sent from heaven? How can he say that he's the bread of life? So Jesus responds in John six forty three. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And he says this, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Where is Jesus quoting when he says that? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. All your children shall be taught by Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. He's tapping into the metaphor of the devastated city. First, he taps into the metaphor of the deserted wife by saying, come to me, I'm regathering you, and I will never cast you out. You will have intimate relationship. And now he's tapping into the metaphor of the city. And he's saying, you who are grumbling and rejecting me, says, understand, you're not thwarting the plans of God. Any who come to me will come to me because the Father draws him, because Isaiah wrote it. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has learned, uh, heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What we find is that Jesus is regathering the bride, and Jesus is also rebuilding the city. And both the bride and the city represent what? The church. Represent the church. So in conclusion, Jesus is the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53, who gave his life for the sins of the world. He's the one who satisfied God's judgment towards your sin and my sin. He is also the one in Isaiah 54 who's ushered in abundant fruitfulness for the people of God. We see that as multitudes continue to come to him to be saved, building that beautiful city, which is the church. He's the one who invites us to intimate relationship by delivering us from shame and disgrace and reproach, like the loving husband who has compassion upon even an unfaithful wife. He's the one who offers eternal security by ushering us into a covenant of peace, which is everlasting, so that we can be reconciled to God without fear of any future judgment. He's also the one in Isaiah 55 issuing forth that open invitation to come to him. He says in John 6, come to me, find satisfaction for your soul. Come to me, I'll never cast you out. Come to me, I will raise you up on the last day. Come to me, you will receive eternal life. He's the one issuing the open invitation. And so with all that, we're just going to close with John 6, verse 35 through 40, and we'll be done. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Christ and all that he's accomplished for us through his substitutionary death. And Help us, as those of us this morning who are Christians, help us to be so deeply moved by all that you provide for us through Jesus that we're compelled to break out in the song and to praise you for all that you've done for us through Jesus. We thank you that you loved us while we were yet sinners. We thank you that you are building your church, that you're adding men and women uh, to the faith. Uh, you're, you're teaching individuals, helping them to understand the gospel, inviting them to re- embrace Christ, and through that, you're producing abundant fruitfulness. We thank you also for the intimate relationship that we have. You brought us into relationship with you as our Heavenly Father, where we have access to you. And uh, we thank you for the love and compassion that you've shown us. Help us to grow uh, in that relationship. And we thank you for the eternal security you've given us, that we never need fear your wrath or judgment towards our sin again. This is a covenant of peace, uh, even like but superseding the covenant with Noah. And uh, so, Lord, we thank you for that absolute security in our relationship. And then, Lord, this morning, we just pray for those who might not be Christians yet. Uh, Lord, I pray that they'd understand your love for them. Uh, they'd understand that Jesus loves, loves us even in our sin and that he has provided everything that we need for salvation so that we can have a relationship with you. So uh, for those who may be hearing the gospel for the first time or understanding it maybe for the first time, uh, assure them that if they come to Jesus through faith, Uh, that you will save them, and that they'll be beneficiaries of all of these blessings as well. So I pray you'd work in hearts this morning. And those who have come to that realization of the gospel, I pray that they could just uh, silently pray to you, um, acknowledging that they believe and uh, that they're trusting Jesus and Jesus alone as their Savior from sin and as their Lord. Lord, we thank you for all of this, for your goodness to us through, through your Son. Amen.